Here's some advice left for us from Rumi. Rumi says, Keep walking. Keep walking though there is no place to get to. Keep walking though there is no place to get to. Do not try to see through the distances. That is not for human beings. Do not try to see through the distances. Move within, but do not move the way fear makes you move. Walk to the well. Turn as the earth and the moon turn, circling what they love. Whatever circles comes from the center. Putting ourselves in the Dharma's hands. When we chant something like that, entrusting ourselves to the Dharma, trusting ourselves to the Sangha. Putting ourselves in the Dharma's hands, we're like a multi-sided jewel that's held up and rotated this way and that. And one time, one facet gleaming, another. It's said, at first, the person, the practitioner, turns the Dharma wheel, and then the Dharma wheel turns the person. We make effort, and Dharma responds. We entrust ourselves to the way, and we are revealed by the way. Actually, Dogen Zenji, who I've been, I've been quoting quite a lot, um, because we're chanting the Genjo Koan, brings to mind all of those teachings. Dogen Zenji says, the way is obstructed by the way. That's us. We entrust ourselves to the way and we are revealed by the way. And what's revealed? That this whole five days of sitting has been answering that. We entrusted ourselves to the way The way has revealed the way to the way. What's revealed? What's revealed is the way that we entrust ourselves. And yet effort itself is dharma, isn't it? Where does the effort come from? My foolishness definitely doesn't want to do this. But my foolishness is a cause of doing this. Effort itself is the Dharma. Being turned by the way, being hindered by the way, being brought forth by the way. You could say, to practice is to muster or engage awareness. Awareness isn't me or mine. Awareness is not something you have or that belongs to yourself. But it's most intimate. It's unshakable. It's unfindable. But it doesn't belong to you. We're turned by the Dharma wheel. But sometimes it's like the turned and the turning, the jewel and the glimmer, we can't tease them apart.
We can't tease them apart. Facets reveal. We are revealed. I thought I'd talk a little bit. This is not, of course, any kind of authoritative model or path layout, but just different facets that we may encounter in practice, or you may have encountered. There's a facet called, wow, so much delusion. (laughs) That's a facet of the jewel. It comes early, it comes later. It goes, and then it comes. A reckoning, a seeing, and up close and personal with the ugliness of the mind. The ugliness of the mind is the ugliness of the mind. Let's call a spade a spade. Let's not mince our words. It's ugly when it's ugly. As I was saying a few minutes ago, we all live with a liar. An honest person can say, I live with a liar. A dishonest person says, no, I don't. The ugliness of the mind is not personal. You're not your thoughts. You don't choose what thoughts pop in. But they're not someone else's problem either. This mind is not self or other. Ugliness of the mind, that reflects something to us. That facet of the Dharma jewel reflects something to us very clearly. And because it's not personal, it's just teaching us about human existence. Right? Here here is the way the mind moves. This, this is the mind, very often ugly. Sometimes it pretends it's not ugly, but it's actually ugly. You don't know till later. The mind, a liar. Here is the ugliness of the mind. Here is the response. If you are in the place where you can say ugliness of mind, then there's the freedom for appropriate response. And then the Dharma wheel turns. There are those who are greatly enlightened within delusion. It's great to know that your inner critic is a liar. In that moment, you turn the Dharma wheel. There's a facet called wholehearted resolve. It comes later, it comes earlier. It comes and then it goes, and it comes. The extent of the prison is clear. I'm dying inside this place. I can chat, I can play cards and work out, but it will never be the unconfined. I'm dying in here. In this prison, the right ratio of love to unlove will never come about. It cannot come about. The very structure is built on delusion. You have to get out. 
I have to get out. There are whispers of a way out. In this facet, nothing else makes any sense. There can't be any more pretending that it's home when it's actually a prison. And so mind and heart and body align in the work of getting free. And priorities are clarified and bullshit is put aside. This facet is one moment and it's a thousand moments. It was also said by one of our ancestors that if we put as much effort as we put into mating and finding mates, if we put the same amount of effort into our practice, we would be liberated. Some of us look back on our teenage years, our 20s, our 30s, maybe our 40s or 50s. <laughs> we go, yeah, wow. That's a lot of energy. There is a facet called encountering the true face. Bright, immovable, nothing. Zero-dimensional, vast. And we can't stay there or leave there. It's not early or later. Encountering the true face. Sometimes we're revealed in this and we don't understand. And sometimes we taste it, but then we're estranged because we do. The facet of the ugliness of the mind and the facet of wholehearted resolve to break out of the prison are very near to each other. There's a facet called the true face everywhere. The true face everywhere. And though you can't sensibly argue it, and I would argue you shouldn't even say it out loud, but I will, each and everything is in its right place, without exception. We shouldn't say it because it's actually not real until the moment of living it. But one moment of living it is each and everything without exception in its right place. It's inconceivable. To say it out loud is offensive. But to live it is tikkun olam, to mend this broken world or to see that it was never broken. There's a facet called the true face everywhere and so how to live and offer just this. Zen can be encapsulated with Something like this, to understand humans' core misunderstanding 
and then embody love in the way that only this particular body, your particular body, can embody love. All the rest is just the crust. Some of it's crusty crust, some of it's crust that a fresh baked loaf of bread has to have, but everything else is just the crust. The heart opening and sobering realization that for everybody, suffering is optional. In some sense, to glimpse the true face is to incur a debt, is to incur the debt, the question of how to live this. We've been doing prayers and trying to evoke the spirit of bodhicitta, the bodhisattva vow. I do believe we do that year after year, night after night, and something is activated in us. It's a note that is ringing something genuine. Bodhicitta, the resonance with the suffering of others, is the only thing that really melts self-centeredness. All of this work that we do can actually spoil, can spoil in the cupboard of self-centeredness. The ugliness of the mind will co-opt anything it can. And it will co-opt whatever it can if we're not careful. So we maintain our resonance with suffering. This is part of what it means by be grateful for everyone. I told the story sometimes about the great um, Indian master Atisha. So Atisha is well known for being one of the first genitors of the points of mind training. The be grateful for everyone slogan is one of them. So this is a very important teacher in, in Indian and Tibetan Buddhism. And Atisha wrote stuff like that and was teaching stuff like that and was just kind of getting really confident and famous and lots of offerings and yaks and tea and butter and all that stuff that was real living large in Tibet. And he noticed he was about to lose his humility. So there was a very irritating person that used to come to his talks that he made his tea boy and traveled everywhere with him. And it's a deep understanding of bodhicitta. So resonance with suffering without suffering. Resonance with suffering without joining in the view. That's true even of ourselves. Resonate with the suffering of something inside of us that is a 
an ancestral meanness, a remnant of, of conditioning of the world, resonance with the suffering of that, but not joining it. Resonance with the confusion of the world about the actual causes of happiness. Because the mind is a liar so much of the time, it tells us that things will make us happy that actually will not. Actually will not. Resonance with that confusion because we see that it's catalyzed in me, but not joining it. bodhisattva way, every day as raising and lowering a teacup, eating breakfast, making a phone call, going to the protest, not going to the protest. Sometimes it's speaking Dharma, sometimes it's letting the Dharma speak. We each have a field of practice. We each have our own mandala. We each are at the center of our mandala. And all the ingredients of awakening are always included in that mandala. One ingredient recedes, the next one appears. It's always complete as such. But this is maybe a too fancy way of saying there are things that are asking for our care. humble care for the everyday moments of our life. Our life is made up of these humble moments that we engage with care. Wonder about the, the kind of thirsty desire for great stimulation, partly because great stimulation disconnects us from the nourishment of everyday humble care of things. Without preference, the way it's a divine pleasure to clean the cat box. It's really interesting, the different poops and smells. It's a divine privilege to saute an onion, to hold open a door. There's a well-known koan. All things return to the edgeless. We might have tasted some degree of that this week. All things return to the endless. Or where does the edgeless return to? All things return to spaciousness. Where does spaciousness return to? Life ferociously unfolds. Isn't it crazy that we're at the last day of session? Isn't it crazy that two days ago some of you thought you were in an inescapable hell and you couldn't wait for it to be over?
Life ferociously unfolds. There is no solid self that can stagnate. It can re-stagnate, but it can't continually stagnate. There's no place to hang your hat. There's no ground that is not shifting, nothing that will not transform. So nothing ever changes. Nothing ever changes. Nothing need leap out of the corner to surprise you. Life's cupboard is just wide open. It's so honest. It's unflinchingly honest. Nothing need surprise you. All the stuff's going to happen. All the stuff's already happening. Nothing changes. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. We get loss and gain. We get successes and failures. We have good times, we have bad times. We get an irritating person who sometimes becomes a loved one. We get a loved one who very often becomes an irritating one. We get it all. Never going to change. The mandala is whole and complete, lacking nothing. <laughs> we thought that was going to mean some sort of <laughs> soup of light. It is a soup of light, though. Life ferociously unfolds. There's no place to hang your hat. There is no ground that is not shifting. It's always going to be the case. You can hang your hat on that. It's always going to be the case. So this is true whether we're practitioners or not. And it's not particularly profound to notice that things are always changing. Everybody does, and that's why they grasp so hard onto something. It's true whether we're practitioners or not. Practitioners don't get different ingredients of life. But will we dance, or how will we dance with the ingredients? That could be different. I can marvel at the extent of my own stupidity. Sometimes I'm in a rush to eat something and I'll, I'll do something like take a cold, untoasted bagel out of the fridge. Basically, like, what is that, like a brick of matter almost devoid of all nutrition. And I smear some peanut butter on it and I gobble it down. My girlfriend's like, do you ever chew your food? She says that nearly every night. And then I have a stomach ache. And I've done that 243 times, at least in this life. Nothing ever changes. So much for the wisdom of experience. That even in that foolishness, it's, there's boundlessness. There's eternity in the rushing. There's eternity in the belly ache. But it may or may not be noticed. It may or may not be practiced. The depth and vastness of our everyday life depends on our state of mind. Depends on how we engage. The ingredients are not really going to get all that better 
they're really not going to get all that much better. Right now, there's eternity in the very breath you're taking. There's eternity in this body pulsing. Eternity in this grumpiness or this anticipation. In some sense, the universe is just helpless before our oblivion. But thankfully, each activity gets its, gives its feedback. I get a stomachache. Each doing flows into the next, and there's no traces. That's part of why we don't learn so much from experience, because we dwell in eternity. Why have I done that bagel thing 244 times? Because there's just this. The universe is ever fresh. There's a Zen master, Zhao Zhu. Many of you, I think, have known of Zhao Zhu, also known as Joshu. And uh, Joshu is one of the great ancestors of Zen. Joshu uh, is the being who brought forth the great, powerful blessing of Mu, the koan, the, the way of practice Mu. He's also known for the cypress tree in the garden, koan. And Joshu is beloved for saying something like, at uh, age 100, or no, age 80, I believe, Joshu went on pilgrimage after having been a monk for something like 65 years already, and is well known for saying, if I meet a small child of five years old who can teach me the Dharma, I will bow and be taught the Dharma. If I meet an 80-year-old man who I can teach the Dharma, I will bow and teach them the Dharma. There is um, a text I want to read for you that's like an uh, autobiographical teaching poem that comes down to us from Zen Master Joshu. It's called The Song of the 24 Hours. The rooster crows, three in the morning, aware of sadness, feeling down and out, yet getting up. So again, it goes without saying, this is one of the greatest spiritual masters of all time. Rooster crows, three in the morning, aware of sadness, feeling down and out, yet getting up. There are no warm underclothes to wear, just some tattered pants and something that looks a little like a robe. Wishing to practice the way and help people, actually, this is just being a fool. First light, five in the morning, a broken down temple in a deserted village. There's nothing worth saying about it. This is where he lives. In the watery morning gruel, there's not a grain of rice. Idly, I face the open window. Only the chattering sparrows as friends, sitting alone, now and then I hear dry fallen leaves blow by. Who says that to leave home and become a monastic is to cut off likes and dislikes? If I think about it, before long, tears start to fall. 
sunrise, seven in the morning. Doing anything with a goal in mind is to get buried in the dirt. Yet the boundless domain has not yet been completely swept. So he's doing his practice. Doing anything with a goal in mind is to get buried in the dirt. Yet the boundless domain has not yet been completely swept. Often the brows are furrowed. Seldom is the heart content. It's hard to put up with the decrepit old men of the village. Donations have never been brought here, and an untethered donkey eats the weeds in front of the hall. Mid-morning, nine o'clock. Working to kindle a fire and gazing aimlessly at it. Cakes and cookies ran out last year. Thinking of them today, I swallow my saliva in vain. (laughs) Seldom are things in order. Incessant sighing. Those who come here just ask to have a cup of tea and not getting any, they go off muttering in anger. Late morning, 11 o'clock. Shaving my head, who would have guessed it would be like this? Nothing in particular made me ask to be a country monk, outcast, hungry, lonely, given no respect. When visitors arrive at the gate, they only ask to borrow tea and paper, and then they go. Sun high in the sky, noon. For carrying the bowl, so monastics traditionally go on alms round. They would, they would take their, their begging bowl, and people knew this is how they were supported, and they would go beg for food. And if they got food, they got food. If they didn't get food, they didn't get food. It's a life of faith. For carrying the bowl to collect rice and tea, there are no special arrangements. House after house, I'm given only excuses. Some bitter salt, some soured barley, a millet paste mixed with old chard. The way-seeking mind of a practitioner must be solid. You can hear his state of mind starting to shift. His, his, His vow starting to come through. Sinking sun, three in the afternoon turning things around, not walking in the realm of unity or separation. Once I heard a saying, at the time of eating one's fill, a hundred days of starvation are forgotten. At the time of glimpsing the true face, all the hardship seems utterly insignificant. At the time of eating one's fill, a hundred days of starvation are forgotten. Today my body is just this, not studying Zen, not discussing the teaching. I spread out some torn reeds and sleep in the sun. I can imagine the pure land, but that would not be as good as this sun toasting my back. Late afternoon, five o'clock, someone is actually here burning incense and making vows. Of these five old women, three have goiter and the other two have faces lost in wrinkles. The two guardian king statues at the temple gate need not bother flexing their muscles. So when you go into Zen temples, there are these ferocious figures that are embodying how ferocious life is. The ferociousness of change, the ferociousness of old age, sickness, and death, the ferociousness of being a practitioner and not resolving the matter. 
Of these five old women, three have goiter, and the other two have faces lost in wrinkles. The two guardian statues at the gate need not bother flexing their muscles. Sundown, seven in the evening. Except for the deserted wilderness here, what is there to protect? The way of a monk is to flow on without any special obligations, wandering here and there for eternity. Words that go beyond fixed patterns do not come through the mouth. Aimlessly continuing where the disciples of the Buddha left off, a staff of rough bramble wood. It's not just for mountain walking, but also to chase off dogs. Golden darkness, nine in the evening, sitting alone in the darkness of this empty one room. Forever unlit by the flickering candlelight, the space in front of me is pitch black. Hearing no temple bell, only the sound of scurrying old rats. What more has to be done? Every moment is going beyond. He's describing his meditation. Hearing no temple bell, only the sound of scurrying old rats. What more has to be done? Bedtime, 11 at night. The clear moon in front of the gate, to whom is it not given freely? Going back inside, my only regret is that it is time to go to sleep. Besides the clothes on my back, what covers are needed? It's no matter if this old bag is empty, who could understand such a thing? How can we possibly express the, the intimacies of practice? How can you possibly express or share the flavors of, of stillness, the flavors of letting go that you touch? Looks crazy from the outside, what we're doing. Midnight, this indescribable feeling, how could it ever cease? Thinking of all the people who have left home and become monastics, it seems like I've been a temple priest for a long time now. Dirt floor for a bed with a torn reed mat, an old block of wood for a pillow. To the holy figure on the altar, no expensive incense to offer. In the ashes of the incenser, hearing only the falling turd of an ox. It's a pretty clear mind to hear the falling turd of an ox. Must have sounded beautiful. So hopefully coming into Seshin is just like a little swell of the river we're already in. The real session has no, no beginning, no end. So may we say in the deepest way possible, may we keep trying to say, may we say over and over, thank you. Thank you to this and that. Thank you for the beating of the heart. Thank you for eyes that see, ears that hear, tongue that tastes. Say it inspired, say it flat, say it grumpy. Thank you.
the alternative to such a thing does not have a good outcome. It's everywhere evident. A teacher who was an, an artist and a, let's call him a homespun mystic, who is dear to some of us here, died, named Antaro Ali. And during his dying season, he told his friends. So Antaro was diagnosed, I guess he was maybe 71 or 72, with late stage uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, declined treatment. And Antro says this, I have lived by a code of amor fati for many years, in love with what is. Whatever fate comes my way, I accept. This is no passive acquiescence or subordination to death, but a revolution of spirit to the deep mystery pulsing at the very heart of existence itself. So good times and bad times and all the times, may it be so. Please take good care and continue.